All right, welcome to RUF. Um, no matter where you find yourself tonight, no matter what you believe, no matter what you've done, we are glad that you are with us tonight. And whether uh, you're with us in person, a couple of people are here, uh, volunteers who have helped helping make large group work, and whether you're in your dorm room with your roommates or you're by yourself, we're just glad that you're with us and want you to feel that. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we're one of the many campus ministries that offered. And we're trying to help you figure out what it looks like to love God, love others, and love Wofford. But more fundamentally, we're people bound by the reality that before anything else, God loves us. And so before we love God, before we love others, before we love Wofford, we are bound by the reality that before anything else, there's a first love. And that first love is God's love for us. And this semester, we're going to be looking at uh, a series on relationships. And we're doing this because um, we believe that Christianity teaches that God existed before all times, uh, before all time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they existed in this eternal relationship before all time and always in this relationship of mutual love, of giving and receiving that theologians have called over the years the eternal dance or the divine dance of love. And the Bible also teaches not just that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is relational. He's made men and women in his image. And so you and I, friends, are made in the image of a relational God. And so we have to talk about relationships if we want to talk about following Jesus, even in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and so what we've done so far, let me, let me review briefly. Um, the first week we just asked the question, what is love? And so we looked at 1 Corinthians 13 that week, which is probably the most famous passage of writing um, ever on the nature of love. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. And then the next week, we sunk our teeth deeper into God's love, our first love with 1 John 4. And then two weeks ago, we transitioned from our love of God and his love for us into loving our neighbors. And so we talked about friendship. We were in John 15 for that. And tonight... What we're going to be talking about is, quote, loving the other, loving the other, loving uh, those who are annoying to you, loving those who don't look like you or talk like you or dress like you or worship like you or vote like you, the other. How do we love the other? And we see this most profoundly demonstrated and embodied in Jesus's life, of course, but in Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman in John 4. If you want to turn there in your Bibles on your phone, we obviously don't have handouts for you or you can follow along in the bulletin. But I, I do want to have the text in front of you if you can get your Bible out uh, or turn there on your phone or computer. It's John chapter 4 and it's fairly, it's like 20 something verses. So you're gonna have to kind of bear with me. But I do want the text in front of you before, while you're getting there though, I have been thinking about sports a lot. So let's just talk about sports very briefly. The NBA Finals start tomorrow night, and my boy LeBron is in it. Um, and I'm excited about that. College football, uh, the SEC started um, on Saturday. It's a big deal. College football is back. NHL, NFL, we're back. And if we talk about sports, we have to talk about one of the primary features of sports, and that's rivalry. Rivalry. Huge in sports. It's a feature of all good uh, teeth sort of matching up against. I grew up in Alabama, and so I grew up hearing about Alabama and Auburn. 
And then we moved to St. Louis for seminary, and I had to learn very quickly about the St. Louis Cardinals versus the Chicago Cubs. And then we moved to upstate South Carolina, and I've had to get used to this strange world where people uh, are talking about, are you either a Clemson fan or a Carolina fan? It's very new to me. But the notion of rivalry is just like woven into the fabric of like our world. Like in, in 45 minutes or so, two guys are going to get up on a stage and they're going to debate. And they are going to uh, talk about why you should vote for them. They're going to be doing so with an air of competition and rivalry. It's very normal. And so if we think of The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, I mean, in many ways, it's like a chronicling that whole documentary series about how obsessed Michael Jordan was, and honestly probably still is, with rivalry. And he'll stop at nothing until he has victory. And we kind of saw with Jordan, but if we kind of back up a little bit, there's kind of an underbelly to rivalry and competition. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes we can be, become so caught up in our own team, our political position, our denomination, our sorority, our fraternity, our skin color, that we become incapable of loving others who don't look like us, who don't vote like us, who don't dress like us or worship like us. But what it means to follow Jesus is precisely to love those people because that's what he did. Because what we'll talk about, you and I are actually those people. Um, so we're going to talk about loving the other. I'm going to read the passage, pray, and we'll walk through it, okay? Follow along. This is God's word. He's spoken to us because he's not silent, not to give us rules to follow or an exam to ace. He's spoken to us because he loves us. John 4, starting in verse 1, Jesus and the woman at Samaria. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, Jesus is uh, making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was not Jesus himself, but the disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. He was thirsty. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Jews did not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? And with his sons and his flocks drank from it. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. Water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty Or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now, is not, now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. When you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, in case you got lost. But the hour is coming, and the hour and the time is now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Word of the Lord, let me pray that he might teach us. Lord, uh, we are grateful for your word. It's living and active. We know that's true because you are living and active. But our minds are busy and our hearts are restless. And you know that. And we ask that you would slow us down by the power of your spirit, that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but doers of it, that we would actually become more like Jesus during this time, during this week. We ask it in his name. Amen. Okay. um, Game plan is this, two points as usual. And we're going to be asking this question that we're going to kind of answer with these two points. The question is this. What do we see Jesus doing in this interaction with the Samaritan woman? What do we see Jesus doing here? We see two things. Pursuing and awakening. Pursuing and awakening. Pursuing. Let's do the first one. All right. So in this story, you have this woman at the well. She's alone. She's an outcast. And she's drawing water at this well. And um, John, in the way that he tells the story, he wants the weight of her isolation to, for us to feel that as we read. She is an outcast. Because when you drew water in the first century in this Near Eastern setting, you always did it with other people. It wasn't like a solo event. You always went with your friends to draw water. Why is she alone? We know a couple reasons based on the text. Some of it's speculative. We know a couple things. She is alone because of her gender her race, and her religion, and her sin as well. So her gender, her race, her religion, and her sin. And that those are the barriers that exist between her and Jesus. And we're going to see what he does with those barriers. But the first thing is gender. In relation to gender, like Jewish rabbis, what she thinks Jesus is, they didn't have female disciples. And certain pharisaical sects, like kind of subcultures of the church, were very restrictive and dogmatic about who... Uh, what women could do and what they couldn't do in church. So gender, then religion. Samaritans um, worshipped multiple gods, and uh, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Torah, that's what they believed their Bible was, and nothing outside of that was the Scriptures. So there's a barrier between Jews and Samaritans, not just uh, with gender here, but also religion. They simply weren't religious enough or devout enough for the Jewish folk of the day. And then there's our sin. We learn that this woman has had several husbands, and I think that this is why she's alone. This woman has baggage. This woman is sexually promiscuous. The text is very clear about that. 
And so she's either alone because all the other women don't want to be with her. I don't want to associate with someone who acts this way, with this sexual ethic, or lack thereof. Or she feels so isolated and she's so crippled by shame that she's like, no, no, no. I'm going to go draw water by myself. Y'all can't be with me. Who would even want to draw water with me because of what I've done? I think that's what's going on. The point is this, she's an outcast. She's an outcast and Jesus zeroes in on her. He zeroes in on her. Rather than avoiding this woman like everybody else, Jesus pursues her. That's what's going on. Jesus pursues her deliberately. He's very deliberate on how close he gets to her and he moves in on her space. And she picks up on it. Did you see how she reacts? She starts asking him questions. She's like, look, why are you talking to me? I'm a Jew, you're, you're, or you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman, you're a man. You're a rabbi, and like I've been around the block. Like, Why are you talking to me? She feels this. Jesus pursues this woman, and I hope this, I want this to shape the way that you actually see God. Do you see God this way? Do you see God as a God who is like zeroing in on you and all of your shame and sin, and he's moving into it, into your space, right where it's uncomfortable, because no one else loves you enough to do it. Do you see him that way? Like he is with this woman here, Jesus knows that the shame that you carry, knows your addictions, he knows the panic attacks, he knows the anxiety medicine that you have to take, he knows the anger that you carry for your professors and your estranged family members. He knows all of it, and he's moving in on you. Do you see him that way? Because here's the deal. If he moves in on the Samaritan woman, friends, he has zeroed in on you. Believe me, he has. That's what the Bible tells us. So he doesn't just pursue this woman. He awakens. He awakens her longings. So Jesus as he gets closer and closer, he moves into her space and her isolation and her shame and her past. And then he awakens her longings. That's why he asked or that's why she asked Jesus. He says, look, where can I get this water you're talking about? Where can I find that? Because I've been looking everywhere for that. You know where I've been looking. Tell me where. Her longings have been awakened by this man. Look at verse 16 again, if you'll have the text in front of you. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five. The one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus is inching closer and closer to her heart, her past, her affections, her longings. He's bringing it up how uh, the kind of life that she has lived. And in doing that, he's not trying to catch her. He's not trying to shame her. He knows that she's crippled with shame. He's not like, look, go call your husband. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Oh, wait, you've had five husbands and the one you're sleeping with now won't even marry you. He's not doing that. You can kind of read it that way if you're not careful. He's not doing that. There's no condemnation here. There's truth. But here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, I've known what you've done. I know what you're longing for. I know where you have been. 
You do not have to hide anymore. You do not have to run anymore. I know. And I know that you're trying to survive and you're going around because you want a beloved to look at you and to say you are mine and you're safe and you don't have to go anywhere else. I know you want that. There's the grace of the way that he's inviting her to receive him as, li- as living water. She catches on to this. She's catching on. I love how straight up this woman is with him. She's such a blunt communicator. The woman begins to catch on. He's like, okay, all right. You're not an average rabbi. You must be a prophet because you've known all about my past. So let's talk about worship. Stuff that I know you're familiar with. Let's talk about Jacob and Israel and their worshiping practices. Let's just talk about that. And then in verse 25, the woman essentially says, I've heard the Messiah is coming. And I've heard that when he comes... He'll clear all this up for us, the living water stuff, how to wash or how to worship um, rightly. The Messiah is going to come and he'll do it. And I want to skip down to verse 24 and through 26. This is Jesus speaking. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman asked him is what she says. I know that Messiah is coming. It's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus responds in verse 26, and he says, I who speak to you am he. And here's what I think he's doing. I think that Jesus is saying, you want someone to clear things up for you with worship for sure. But I think you're really just like distracting me. You're trying to from the like living water, how restless your soul is, how thirsty your soul is. Look no further. The living water is standing right in front of you. I think that's what he's saying. I who speak to you am living water. I am the Messiah. And when you abide in me, you won't look anywhere else. You won't want to. There will be no going back. When you abide in me, you'll never thirst again. So he zeroes in on her. Breaking all kinds of social and religious barriers. She is a true, like, other on every level. And he pursues her in love, and he awakens her longings. Now, before we move, like, to get really practical with application, I, I just, we must pause. Because I, well, here's what I don't want this sermon to be. All right, we're talking about friendship, how to be a good friend. We're going to talk about loving the other. So, like, love the person who votes differently from you. Yeah, of course. I want us to sink our teeth into God's love just for a second before we go to application. That's the first love. Do you see Jesus zooming in and pursuing you and awakening your desires and saying, look no further, I'm living water. Do you see him? Do you hear the invitation to experience that? He knows what you want. He knows your longings. He knows your past. He knows what you're carrying Like when you got sent home in the spring, whatever the summer was like, and what you're carrying into Wofford College, he knows all of it. He knows you want to be accepted. He knows that you long to be a spouse one day. And it's like, am I ever going to like, is someone going to ask me out or not? Like, I want to be married. He knows that. Of course he does. Because he's your beloved. He's your beloved. You are his and he is yours. And he has given himself to you and he's given himself to you in such a way that you can be so deeply satisfied in your soul that you'll never want to experience anything else in comparison to it. There will be no comparison. And friends, especially whether you're a Christian here or not, 
You know, the Bible says, like, before we were even born, that God has loved us. So this pursuit is not like at Wofford College. He's been on the, like, hunt for you your whole life. Do you know that? Like, he knows how many hairs are on your head. All those verses you probably heard growing up, like, this is relentless pursuit because he wants to satisfy your soul. He's on the hunt for you. Do you see him that way? All your longings can be found in Jesus and you'll never thirst again. Just, I hope we pause and reflect on that. Now let's go to application. And I wanna get at it this way. What happens to somebody when they experience this kind of love from Jesus? When they experience pursuit from him and they awaken, these desires awoken by Jesus and like, look, you're thirsty, you'll never thirst again when you abide in me. When you experience that, what happens to you? What happens to a person? Because we've been asking this question. It's not the college years, as formative as they are, it's not just about like, oh, what do you study? What do you do with your life? Or um, what sorority or fraternity you're in or organization you're in or where you're from or what you're doing this summer with internships. It's not about what you do. So much of college, like, who are you becoming? I want us to ask that question this semester. Who are we becoming? So what happens when we get caught up in God's love this way? When you encounter God's love in this way, you will love like Jesus loved. If you think of another gospel scene, Jesus is having dinner at a dinner party and everyone's feet's real dirty. And you gotta wash feet before you eat because you sit so low to the ground that you don't want pee and poop to get in your food, literally, I'm not joking. And Jesus, usually there's like some, essentially like a slave there who gets the apron off the door, puts the apron on, gets the, like everything he's gonna use with the rag and scrubber, he gets on his hands and feet and he scrubs the pee and poop off people's feet. You know what Jesus did in that moment? Probably know where I'm going. He gets the apron and puts it on, puts the robe of the, the servant on, the, the identity of a servant and washes Peter's feet, which he's very uncomfortable with. Of course he was. And at the very end, he's like, look, Peter, I want you to understand something. You have to be washed by me. This is like, and I have to wash your sins away. And I'm doing this with like this servant um, way. And look, I want you to like leave this meal and go serve others like this. Do likewise. That's the logic. When you experience love from Jesus, you got to love like Jesus loves. You got to wash feet. You got to love the outsider. You got to love the outcast. Because here's what happens. I didn't read the whole passage. When you read on from this story, some of y'all probably know this. What happens, this Samaritan woman experienced the love of Jesus. Then she goes to the closest town nearby and essentially yells, guys, listen, you've got to come meet this man. He knows everything that I've ever did. Everything that I've ever done, you've got to meet him. He knows me. He's the Messiah. He is who I've been waiting for. She's got to tell someone. And so she's going from someone who's crippled with shame and loneliness to an unbound witness to the good news of Jesus. This was what's happening. So once you experience the boundary-breaking love of God, there's no going back, and you are then compelled to break all kinds of social and political and racial boundaries for the sake of the love of Jesus. This is what happens. Those who you're allergic to, those with whom you struggle, those on the margins of society. I, so I'm, I'm into running. A lot of y'all know that. I run on the, cot, or in the Cottonwood Trail and the Rail Trail a lot almost every day. And when I'm running, usually when I'm most like, sometimes I'm listening to music, sometimes I'm just in my own head. 
And usually when I don't have music on or I'm not listening to a podcast, I get very in, in my own head and I get, I find myself getting really self-absorbed. Happens a couple, well, that's kind of how I wake up if I'm honest. But on runs, I'm just like, man, why am I only thinking about myself? Like it just kind of hits me. Almost every single time, about twice a month, I will see someone passing me that's physically handicapped. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. That's actually been like a theme of my life. It's really strange to me, and I don't think it's accidental at all. When I'm kind of most like narcissistic navel-gazing mode, like life really is all about the kingdom of Matt, I will see someone like that. And it completely floors me. And it's driven me to tears many times. And this happened yesterday. I'm thankful for that because it's stretching me. And it's like, look, no, 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 no. Do not get comfortable socially. This is the kingdom. This is how you love. You become someone who wants to break barriers with the way that you love. And so there's so many things we can say about practically applying this to our lives. I'm just going to list some things off. We're going to land the plane. All right. This is the first thing. When you experience the love of Jesus like this, a couple things will happen. More than a couple, but a couple um, things here. You'll become someone who's learning to love those who think differently than you, who think differently than you. So politically, you're about to watch a debate. I want to get real practical. I hope you watch it with someone who you don't agree with. I actually want to invite you to watch this debate with someone that you don't agree with, and I want you to fight to love them and be slow to speak and listen to them. Do that. Theologically, you don't agree about the Bible. What's the, real, like, what's the real way to become right with God? Is it works or is it grace? Are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Love each other. Do not like, love each other. These are your brothers and sisters. You'll become someone who is learning to love your enemies, which is so hard. And of course, Jesus did that, didn't he? And y'all, newsflash, Jesus' enemies actually weren't just the people who were nailing his hands and feet to a cross. It's me, and it's you, and he now calls us friends. You also become someone who resists cynicism with people who annoy you. They could annoy you because of the way they vote or dress or talk or where they're from. I want you to resist being cynical in your heart when you see them and you hear them talk. And they talk about the goofy movies and music that you like make fun of. Please watch your tongue. Be slow to speak. Resist cynicism, please. This is what happens. When you're in social settings and there's someone you're allergic to there, you'll learn how to bite your tongue and not socially dominate just to prove them wrong when you know that they're kind of wrong or you want to draw attention to yourself. Look, I'm getting very practical. Maybe you have a roommate like, who's the most annoying person at Wofford College? Like, I know all about roommate um, problems, you know. I've had my fair share in my life, and I talk about roommate stuff with you guys literally every day. Last thing is this. Well, one, one, one thing before. Resist, you resist clickiness. You resist clickiness and tribalism. And so, I just want to ask you this. Like, is your primary friend group, like, really, like, just the same? Politically, socially, same fraternity, sorority, organizations, campus ministry. 
We've got to ask that. This is the last thing. You'll be someone who's committed to the local church. I'm going to camp out here for just a few minutes. You'll be someone who's committed to the local church. The local church, friends, is the most quirky spiritual environment you could possibly be in. And it's where all the magic happens in the kingdom. If in your time at Wofford and you're a Christian trying to follow Jesus in college and your primary, your only spiritual circle socially are people at Wofford, you're being malnourished spiritually. You need to hear babies cry. You need to listen to old people. You need to volunteer in the youth group. Not to, you're not earning anything. You need to see the like variety of the kingdom and you need their voices and they need your voice. I remember in seminary, I've told some of you guys about my community group, Old Orchard Church community group. I led it with this other girl named uh, Jessie who worked at our seminary. This is in St. Louis. Let me tell you about some of the people. You have Hervey and Dorothy. Hervey and Dorothy were some of the founders of the church. Real grumpy. Hated change. Anytime I introduced change, I was the hot, you know, hothead seminarian coming in, and I wanted to change the time and the format. They had no part of it, no part of it. So grumpy and so faithful. Then you had Jan Rao, who was physically handicapped and emotionally and sexually and physically abused for decades of her life. She's there, but such a servant heart, um, but very socially like challenging to be to be friends with. You have Dorinda. Dorinda was physically and um, and mentally handicapped. She couldn't hear at all, and, but she had this really interesting hearing aid that linked up somehow with a microphone. And so when we shared in the community group, we had to like pass this little like microphone around. Very awkward. Every week we had to do this. And then she was married to Brinson, who uh, was in and out of uh, psychiatric homes and also was bipolar and mental illness was like the road that he walked on. And then you had me and Jesse who were at the seminary. This is our group. Every week for three and a half years, and they had been meeting for 15. And it, is, it, ne- it didn't get any, cor- it's the quirkiest social setting I've ever been in my life. Friends, um, I grew to love these people. First time I ever showed up, Dorinda, who I mentioned earlier, she pulls out this notepad she starts asking all of her friends questions who were there about how they can, hey, what about this? You mentioned your, uh, your husband who's not here tonight. He had that surgery. How's that going? You have your non-Christian sister. How is she doing? Is she coming around? Is she still bitter about the church? She had such a particular knowledge about these people because they've been together forever and they got on each other's nerves. The only thing they really had in common was Jesus. And it was beautiful. And then on Sunday mornings, we would have communion and at Old Orchard, you would get around in a circle, the whole congregation, and the pastor would get the bread and wine, bread and cup, and he would uh, institute the Lord's Supper, and then he would pass the elements around, and they would go around in the circle. And so you had to serve your neighbor. You had to take the bread, and you looked at who's your right and your left, and you said, this is Christ's body broken for you. And you got the cup, and you said, this was Christ's blood shed for you. And I watched my community group members do that every week to each other, even when they were getting on each other's nerves, and I knew about it. And they were ministering to each other that way. And y'all, the Lord's Supper is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And there will not be any quirkier of a table than that table. 
And you're going to be sitting across from guys and girls that get on your nerves right now. And you're going to laugh together. And you're going to say, Jesus was the only shot we got here. He was our only hope. And you're going to laugh and you're going to say cheers to you. I'm so glad you're here. And we get to practice that now in the church. That's part of what it means to be committed to the local church. So last, I'll land the plane to get very practical here. I hope you find a local church to call home in Spartanburg to worship. And even a step further, what would it look like to actually go to a Sunday school class? What would it look like to actually be a member, not like an occasional attender of a community group? To be able to say, like, part of my Wofford College experience was like a 55-year-old couple with, like, high school kids, like my parents' age. I can tell you, you'll not regret that. But it is stretching. Very stretching. But I want to invite you to do that. Okay, Jesus has got us to the table. He pursued us. He has awakened this desire in us. And he has given us living water. If you've never experienced that, I would love to talk to you about it because it's real and it's available to you right here and right now. We're, I'm going to pray and then we're going to go to the breakout rooms just for a few seconds, all right? So stay on. We're